We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. I'm your host today, Aoife, and I'm joined by... Torty. Hello, everyone. It's a delight for me to be here today. And I'm so happy to welcome our guest today, Professor Sarah Sharples. Hi, um, really, really great to be joining you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, no, lovely oh, no, to lovely have you. Um, so before we jump into things, Sarah, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, so I'm the uh, Chief Scientific Advisor for the Department for Transport. So what that means is I've got a job to um, give independent challenge to um, the way in which the department embeds thinking about science, engineering and technology in all that it does. Um, but I'm also there to help. So I work for four days a week with the Department for Transport um, and uh, try and provide support to a range of their activities um, relating to science, engineering, innovation and technology. And um, I'm doing the role on secondment from the University of Nottingham, where I'm a professor of human factors. Oh, well, wow, that, that sounds ridiculously impressive, I must say. Um, and because of all this, you recently gave a, a, a Turing lecture about your work. And for anyone who's unfamiliar, the Turing lectures are the Institute's flagship event series. This year, they're organised in partnership with the Royal Institute of Great Britain, with the goal of making AI and data science research more accessible to everyone. So how, how did that lecture go? So, I mean, first of all, it was a huge honour not only to be asked to do a Turing lecture, but then to have the opportunity to deliver the Turing lecture in the Royal Institution. Um, I'm definitely of a generation that grew up watching the Royal Institution Christmas lectures. And so it was really exciting. It was, it was a bit of a bucket list thing, I think, for senior academics to have the opportunity and to, to present at the Royal Institution. Um, uh, a little secret is it's much smaller than it looks on TV. <laughs> Um, and uh, But actually, it was a really friendly and welcoming place to speak. I was really pleased that um, with the support of colleagues from the Royal Institution and from Turing, we managed to invite um, colleagues from a range of universities around the UK to do some demonstrations of technologies related to the topic of the lecture as well. And that gave, I thought, the event a really nice sort of buzz and excitement around the new technology. But then the lecture itself went well. I did do a lot of preparation. It's, I still get nervous, even at this uh, advanced age, um, in, in doing these talks like this. Um, but there was a really diverse audience. So there were a group of school children that were there that asked some great questions, actually. Um, uh, there were members of my family. There were people who'd just been walking by off the street and had decided to purchase tickets. There were colleagues from the department. There were people who were world-leading experts in self-driving vehicles who know a lot more than I do um, about the topic that we were talking about. So actually the challenge of presenting to that range of people within an audience um, is quite exciting. And the only advice I think I'd give to anyone who has the opportunity to do something like this in the future is you can't be over-prepared. I did prepare an awful lot for the talk and I'm really glad that I did. Mm -hmm. But the, the atmosphere in there was electric. I think everyone 
was was riveted at the time and I've got to ask which members of your family did you manage to convince <laughs> to come watch you because I'm very impressed with that so so my dad came along and actually it was very it was very sweet he came along with his wife and I hadn't actually really told him about it because I was so nervous about doing the lecture and so focused on getting everything prepared I sort of forgot to tell everyone that I was doing it oh. and uh, and I think my brother spotted it on Twitter and told my dad so he came along he even bought a ticket I did say I probably could have got him one for free um, and then really loved actually um, one of my best friends from home came along as well um, she and I met because our mums met at mother and baby class 50 years ago um, and uh, and so she's a school teacher physics school teacher um, and uh, and came along after work so it was really lovely to have them there actually that's so special I love that yeah that must be really nice especially like your dad how did did he give you feedback after it did he say he understood it or Yes, he did. And he did say he understood. I mean, he said he was terribly proud, as I think parents always uh, always do. I mean, bizarrely, it's slightly more intimidating presenting to members of your family um, than it is um, presenting to um, uh, experienced and um, sort of professional colleagues. Um, I, I always uh, feel a little bit embarrassed when, as my kids talk about it, I put my lecturer voice on. Um, and uh, Because you do project yourself and behave in a slightly different way in a work environment. And so to sort of get over your um, embarrassment at changing personas, I think, in a professional context in front of your um, uh, personal friends is always a really interesting experience. But um, uh, but it's good. It's good to try these things and uh, to take yourself out of your comfort zone. Well, I think the sheer number of questions that we got from the audience at the time and then also to ask you now is just testament to how engaged everyone was and how everyone was sort of sparking off each other in that wide background range is really you can really see that in the questions so yeah should we dive in yeah so for, from the lecture there was um people obviously watching online and we had a lot of questions submitted that we didn't really get a chance to during the lecture to um answer so is it okay if we ask you some of them now yeah of course yeah okay cool um uh, well one of the first ones we have here is from anthony and they ask what work is being done on the legal implication for self-driving vehicles and who is responsible if an accident occurs so one of the great things in the lead up to um, delivering the lecture is I worked really closely with some colleagues at the Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles at the Department for Transport. This is a centre that's run jointly with the Bayes Government Department as well. And really, that question that was asked there by Anthony um, has been the focus of their work for the last eight to ten years. Um, so um, I was really grateful for many of the discussions I had actually with them in the lead up to the lecture because what I was doing was looking at the academic research and then what they've got to do is to take the learning from that academic research and place it into policy. So a couple of years ago, before I joined the department, some really important work was um, commissioned from a group called the Law Commissions. Um, so this is a group of legal experts that worked from across the UK to really try and grapple with these legal definitions and exactly the question that was asked there, who's responsible in the case of an accident or an incident occurring? Um, their recommendations are published and people can look at those um, in the public domain. And the Department of Transport has um, committed to using those recommendations as the basis for any future legislation. So there are some really important things that emerge from those recommendations. The first is, and this is one of the things I talked about in the talk, was that we're, we're changing 
the distinction between the roles of the driver in the vehicle in a way that is so radical that it's disrupting a system that's been in place for over 100 years. And it's something we take for granted, that the driver has responsibility for sort of sensing and controlling the vehicle, um, but the vehicle responds and um, executes the impact of that control action. And we're changing that because we're moving some of that decision and that sensing work, in, in some cases, completely to being with the drive with the vehicle. And so what that means is that really the word driver doesn't apply anymore. And the way in which the um, law commissions recommended this change was to introduce a notion called a user in charge. Now, a user in charge is not devoid of responsibility. And the documents set out some proposals about what those responsibilities might look like, um, particularly, for example, being responsible for maintaining the vehicle, ensuring it's roadworthy, ensuring that in the case of self-driving software, it's had appropriate updates and mm-hmm. um, uh, ensuring um, uh, various things around the passengers as well. But um, there's something else that is proposed by the Law Commission's report, which is something called an ASD, an Authorised Self-Driving Entity. Now, this is the radical disruption, because this is about changing some of the responsibility to being organisations that will then take responsibility for the response of the self-driving vehicle. Now, what those organisations look like is something that will still evolve. Um, It will probably involve a combination of expertise in software, in the sort of mechanical engineering of um, the vehicle itself, and then the work of the insurers come in here as well. Um, But What's being hoped for um, is that we can start to bring what's called the primary legislation into place that can help provide that framework that then will enable some of the detail that will come through secondary legislation for a specific regulation um, in place as a result of that that framework. So um, that's where we are at the moment. And if anyone wants to know any more, all of that's available on the DFT website um, for people to look at. And I'd really recommend, actually, that people take a look at that Law Commission's report and some of the summary documents, because it was based on such detailed and sound evidence that there's a lot that people can learn mm-hmm. from and understand um, there. Actually, just what you mentioned towards the end there, whenever you were talking about... Um especially like software design and things like this. Mm. So if I can be really selfish and just ask a question, because I'm essentially a software engineer myself. Um, Is there any chance of me writing some code that gets me in trouble at some point then? So I think this is this is the really interesting question with with all types of systems that we're seeing being increasingly reliant on technology elements. Um, I sometimes sort of talk about we we shouldn't be talking about transport technology. We should be acknowledging that almost all of transport now is technology, mm-hmm. and so perhaps an artificial separation between software and hardware is is perhaps confusing the issue a little bit. Um, So, I mean, we need to have appropriate frameworks that protect all of those who are involved in the development of technologies that deliver the systems that we see within our transport systems. And in the same way as we already have um, mechanisms and regulations that protect, for example, an engineer who works at uh, an automotive company who is designing a change in the way that the um, uh, that the car works at the moment. We just need to bring software engineers into that discu- um, into that discussion. So, so I think that 
Um, uh, we need to make sure that the frameworks that are in place from a legal and a regulatory point of view recognise that this isn't just about physical widgets anymore. Mm. This is also about software. And the people who are involved in developing that software need to be considered in the same way as the people who've been traditionally doing the physical engineering advice over the years as well. I I, I think it's really interesting the way uh, you spoke about this redefinition of of what a driver means. Um, And you're right, that is so trailblazing and unique. Um, and I think a lot of sort of the confusion and then the distrust around driverless cars sort of stems from that. And to sort of encompass that, we've got a question from Perdita Stevens. And they ask, if the driver has to stay alert and responsible, what is the point of that AV? And I think it's important to remind people um, why we're doing all of this in the first place. It seems like a lot of effort. So so the first thing is there's a really, really important distinction. And and the problem is it's it's quite complicated. And so thinking about how we explain and communicate it to the general public is one of the big focuses of work at the moment. So there's a big difference between driver assist technologies and self-driving technologies. So driver assist technologies, the sorts of things we, we actually already have on our car, a, a really um, a basic example of driver assist is ABS that um, affects the way in which the brake actually um, the action is executed on the wheels. So um, uh, when I learned to drive um, quite a few years ago, you were still being taught to what was called pump your brake um, (laughs) in a a situation particularly where there was a slippery road surface Mm -hmm. or something like that. Well, you don't need to be taught that anymore because the software that's based within the vehicle automatically controls the response of the brake, particularly if there is, for example, a slippery road surface. So driver assist technologies are already in place. And the best example that you'll see this is in some of the um, uh, features, for example, on a Tesla vehicle, um, where there's really quite sophisticated information about what's going on around you when you're um, uh, driving the vehicle. But it's very, very clear that you are still in control of the vehicle at the time. So this is about reducing the demand on the driver, making sure that the driver is still able to cope with the level of complexity that is placed um, uh, around them. When we move to self-driving, then what's really important is that there's a very clear distinction between the point at which an individual is not driving and therefore the responsibility sits with the ASDI, the Authorised Self-Driving Entity, and the point at which the driver is driving. Now, that's um, a a complex um, issue that needs to be addressed by really, really, really clear communication between the driver and the vehicle. So one of the bits of work that I talked about in the Turing lecture was how we make sure that we have appropriate um, takeover from a driver when they're required to take over. And then when we're looking at the um, implementation of vehicles in a a real-world scenario, we need to be very, very um, clear about the situations in which it will be appropriate to use self-driving software and self-driving features and make sure that, and this from a human factors point of view, is, is very, very important, make sure that a driver is always very, very clear what their role is. Are they the user in charge and there's a self-driving feature that has been um, uh, enacted or are they the responsible individual? Um, I do think it's one of those things that as we become used to it, we will develop our understanding. Um, there's some brilliant work that's 
being led by my colleague Bex Posner um, and, uh, and others at the Department for Transport that's using what's called a deliberative research technique at the moment. And I mentioned this a little bit in the lecture. What that work is increasingly demonstrating, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the talk, is that actually when people experience technology, they learn from that. They change their responses. They change their le levels of trust. They change their understanding. Um, when we're talking about this in an abstract way, it can feel, I think, a little bit scary and a little bit sort of worrying. But actually, the reality of self-driving technologies and self-driving vehicles is something that we're just going to have to very, very gently introduce to the public, make sure people feel able to ask questions, but also make sure that we're designing the interfaces that communicate between the individuals and the vehicles in a way that it's really, really clear who's responsible for what and when. Do you think you'll you'll get to a point then where possibly um, you, you you would argue that the, the cars might know more than the people driving them? Because from what you said at the minute, you're saying like, oh, you still need a responsible person in the driving seat. But do you think there'll be a point where, no, the car knows better? So one of the things I, I sort of said in my lecture, and I say all the time, actually, humans are fallible and humans are brilliant. And our job is to minimise the impact of human fallibility and maximise the value of humans' brilliance. Well, Technology is brilliant as well, and technology is fallible. And this is all about making the right partnership between the two. So, yes, in many situations, technology already knows more than us. I, I, I'm not Google. I can, I, can, I can use Google and Wikipedia mm -hmm. and find out way more than any human mind could ever maintain in their long-term memory. So we're already surrounded by technology that does lots of things way better than us. In 1951, there was something that was produced called Fitz List. And at the time, um, it was called Mabba Habba. Men are better at... Sorry, machines are... Was, no, I'll, I'll get this right. I'll get this back. No, this is point. It was called Mabba Mabba. Um, and this is why I get cross, because it was men are better at, machines are better at. They did change that to being Mabba Habba. Um, and, uh, um, but, uh, but basically, it said, right, at the time, what do we know that machines are better at? And what do we know that people are better at? And actually, mm. of course, that list has evolved over time. And occasionally, people like me go back to Fitz List. So an example is that in 1951, when Fitz List first came out, um, uh, machines um, were not as good as people were at sensing, mm -hmm. right? We now have so many sensing technologies that can go far beyond human perception, Um I'll give you an example in connected and automated vehicles. What we're going to end up with is the value of that connected element that we sometimes forget, actually. We sometimes really focus on the individual vehicle. Mm -hmm. But of course, what will happen in a future connected vehicle situation is that vehicles will be able to share the data that they've sensed between each other. So if I'm driving down the road and I'm approaching a junction and I can't see around the corner, my vehicle can see around the corner because, not because it can suddenly bend light, but because it's in communication with the vehicles around mm. the corner mm. and can have the information back from them and can tell you about that information. 
what that can mean is we can have really effective dynamic management of speed. Actually, this already happens on the motorway mm. because the reason why we sometimes are on the motorway and we will see a sign that tells us to go at 50 miles an hour and we can't see anything uh, that explains that about us is because the technology can see further ahead than we can. It knows that further ahead on the motorway, um, there are vehicles that are either stationary or have slowed down. And that actually, for effective management of the capacity of the motorway, it's more sensible for my part of the motorway to be travelling at 50 miles an hour. So that's a situation already where the technology knows more than we do. Mm -hmm. And that technology communicates with us through those variable message signs on the motorway. um, And we then follow those instructions. So this is all about getting the right partnership between people and between technology, working out what people are brilliant at, working out what technology is better at, and getting that partnership working effectively. Mm-hmm. That's really That's interesting when I've heard it mm-hmm. said like that. And it's really interesting to talk about that network of, of vehicles. Um, and there was a lot of interest in that. And I think from the audience too, uh, with quite a lot of questions about sort of emergency services and how that network would work with those. So there was a question from Simon um, who asked, will AVs be remotely commanded when there is a danger ahead, such as a vehicle fire, flood or other hazards? And yeah. So, I mean, uh, certainly my advice, and remember my job is to advise the, the department, would absolutely be yes. This is one of the key areas where that connected nature um, of communication can be hugely valuable. Um, and, uh, um, and, and of course, what we can also do is we can explain to people within the vehicles why, for example, they're being slowed down, they're being diverted. One of the things that research tells us is that if people understand why something is happening, that helps them form a mental model of the system. Mm -hmm. And also, it it helps them to understand um, why their behaviour that might be immediately inconvenient to them is actually of benefit to the system as a whole. Um, And behavioural science colleagues have been studying this for many, many years. And it's really important information to sort of feed in as we're designing our whole systems um, use of um, autonomous vehicles and automated vehicles in the future. So if I can just tack on to that, then, um, if if we're envisaging that these uh, vehicles are going to be able to communicate with each other, um, are you envisaging some sort of unified communication network or are you going to try and get all these different companies to jointly work together? Um, I think that uh, there are definitely benefits in ensuring that you've got frameworks to enable Mm -hmm. that shared communication and understanding um, between vehicles. And there are people who know much more than I do about this area, so I won't talk about the, the, the specific technologies. But we know that from other parts of the transport system, having a approach of openness and open data can be hugely, hugely beneficial. What is really important is that we work with the industry partners who are delivering the self-driving vehicle vision for society as a whole and work out where that sort of pre-competitive sweet spot for sharing data actually is. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, Individual organisations, because it's it's their business, will have certain elements of their data which are really important for their intellectual property, their sort of unique um, opportunity to deliver the financial um, value of engaging that they need to deliver. But working out where it can and should be appropriate to share data is really important. An observation is that 
people tend to get really anxious about the sort of sharing and openness of data. And colleagues at organisations like the Open Data Institute <laughs> that I know work really closely with Turing um, are brilliant in terms of um, uh, sort of supporting those discussions. What we've actually seen so far in transport is a real benefit from sharing data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and my colleagues at the Department for Transport do some really great work in sort of mediating some of those processes for sharing data um, that I've been really impressed by. Um, so it's just making sure we've got that balance between commercial viability and then sharing data for the system as a whole. So that, that, that's really interesting, actually, because it touches on one of the questions we got on the feedback forms. Mm. And that was, unfortunately, there's no name attached to this one, but it is... What strategic partnerships need to happen to broaden inclusion? So I imagine they mean like, who, who do you need to get on board and how do you facilitate those yeah. conversations? So, so I will say there's been some fantastic partnership working um, happening so far. It's, it's quite a job. You imagine as an independent sort of chief scientific advisor, your job is to spot all the things that a department's not doing very well and correct them. In, in most of the cases, I, I find things that are really good. And actually, my job is to make sure they continue to um, happen and continue to be prioritised. Um, a lot of the partnership working that's taken place, I gave you the example of the law commissions earlier, um, organisations like the RAC Foundation, some of the safety campaign organisations have been working really collaboratively with the Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles over a number of years now. Um, so I think those partnerships are really um, well in place. I will say that particularly from an inclusion point of view, because equality, diversity and inclusion is something that's very, very close to my own heart, um, There is a a very, very important mantra, which is nothing about us without us. And I think that thinking about the different affected groups, whether it's groups that you might distinguish by protected characteristics, so in this case, disability and ageing population um, might be an important group to consider, but also socioeconomic difference, um, uh, regional difference um, might be really important as well. So again, some of the work that's already taking place, which is taking demonstrations of self-driving vehicles to different parts of the UK, working with different population groups and listening to their views to enable us to take those into account Mm -hmm. when we're then giving advice, I think is exactly the right way to go. But there's so many different groups that have so many different views here. We just need to make sure this partnership working continues. Mm-hmm. So just just on that, then, has how has, in your view, public perception kind of been on these things? Um, it's been really interesting. And I have to say, probably my understanding of public perception is exactly the same as yours in that, you know, it'll be what I read in the newspapers or see on the TV or um, see reported on social media. Um, so we do know that the negative impact of a bad incident can be really, really impactful on development of a technology or even perception of a transport mode. And we've seen this over the years as as incidents have happened. And actually, we see it in all sort of other sectors in in terms of um, uh, commercial sectors or or different types of brands that suddenly can have a big change in their perception because of one um, major high-profile incident. And obviously, there have been several incidents in the testing of self-driving technologies that have um, risen to um, uh, the public view. Um, However, 
I do think that this will be a gradual change that we just need to work through very, very carefully and with our eyes open. And we need to recognise that people will, of course, have questions about this sorts of technology. And we must answer those questions, recognise where they're coming from, recognise if people feel anxious or threatened by any of these technologies and not bat those challenges away, but engage with those discussions. Um, One of the things I mentioned in my talk is we're all surrounded by automated transport systems already. Mm -hmm. Um, We all travel on the Docklands Light Railway. Um, I don't know if you've ever sort of seen a pilot operating an aircraft, but I remember the first time I saw a pilot who was taking me through an example process of um, taking off and flying in an aircraft simulator that I was observing. And the thing that really surprised me was how quickly he engaged autopilot. It was within about two minutes of leaving the ground, if not less. Um, Autopilot is an amazing technology um, that's been with us for many, many years um, and is an automated driving technology in an aircraft. So we haven't even got roads or anything like that around us. So, um, so, So actually, we are already surrounded by automated driving technology, What we need to do is recognise that this is a change to something that at the moment is not an automated system. So us recognising that the public will need to understand the implications of that change for them and their families and society as a whole is really, really important. So I I thought you made some really excellent points there. Um, I would just wonder then if people are wanting to learn more or are feeling a little bit anxious about things, uh, would you have any particular sources of information you'd tell them to go look or read? Um, for example, I remember during your talk, you mentioned, um, I think, uh, I think you put out called Connected and Automated Mobility 2025. Yeah. Is this the kind of thing people yeah. would be interested in? Yeah. So certainly having a look on the government website mm-hmm. um, at the reports that have been published there, they, they do usually have really good and accessible executive summaries. Some of the reports are quite long. Um, it's great to have all the detail there, but sometimes the executive summary can also be a bit more accessible. And you're right, the Connected and Automated Mobility Report 2025 does talk about the vision for what we need to do as a country to really engage with the innovation opportunity that CAM brings us um, uh, over um, uh, the forthcoming years. So that's one route to look at. But the other thing is, just do a little bit of searching yourself and find the source of information that suits you. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm forever astonished by how much my children, and I was with my nieces and nephews at the weekend as well, and the amount they pick up from routes that I couldn't possibly explain to you um, are absolutely astonishing. And do you know what? The vast majority of the time, it's really good stuff. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, so not, it's, it's not, you know, we shouldn't be worried about people picking up information from, my kids will tell me off from talking about TikTok or something like this on this. That I, again, I don't pretend to understand. Um, but actually engage with the information that suits you um, and learn from those resources um, and, uh, and and so one of the most important skills we can teach people is actually how to work out whether a source is a trusted source mm-hmm. or not. Um, it doesn't need to have a gov.uk um, address for it to be the only trusted source. And actually that diversity of view is really important. There are some really great organisations out there. I will put a particular shout out actually for the RAC Foundation um, that 
funds an awful lot of work in this area um, and uh, um, provides some really good resources as well. But um, uh, very often you can do what we would call scientifically sort of snowball sampling. Mm. So you look at one report, you look at the sources that that report's used, you go and look at that, you go and look at the thing that's used and, and keep going on. Um, but don't be snooty either. Sometimes you might get some really, really great insight from a podcast that talks about um, uh, someone who's happened to travel in um, a self-driving vehicle, for example. Cool. Well, um, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm very aware that we're running out of time and you're a very busy lady. So um, I think we should start to wrap up. Perfect. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us today or any... Are you on social media or is there anyone else you'd like to shout out that people should maybe check out? I think I think what, what I just sort of want to close with is step back and think about these technologies from a wider systems and societal point of view. Sometimes when we see something new like this, we can get very focused on the very specific use case that might affect us or that we might have particularly experienced. And it's, it's really helpful to um, think at that level of detail. But stepping back and thinking about where we want society to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time and all the different ingredients that we need to get there, I think, is important. Mm -hmm. and, and I would just put a shout out for engaging with the world of transport. One of the things that, you know, I'll never understand. I love transport as a domain. I've always been fascinated by it. Um, but actually, we need brilliant people working in transport to help us solve all of these problems. So anyone who's listening to this podcast and is thinking about what they do in their careers in the future, bear in mind that graduates today will have between seven and 12 careers. People won't be staying in the same job and staying in the same domain. If you're working in healthcare at the moment, if you're working in the creative industries at the moment, give transport a go because there are so many brilliant opportunities um, to advance technology and really ensure that technology makes a difference. So um, I think that's what I hope that if I've done nothing else, I've infused <laughs> people to pay a little bit more attention to the opportunities that transport might bring. Oh, I, I think you've definitely done that. Yeah, um, you convinced I'm, me. Yeah. Anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I might be done with computers. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, just uh, I'd like to say thanks again for Tordy for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming and speaking with us today. No problem. Um, this has been lovely. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Brilliant. And thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Calstry, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram. Thank you.